We are indeed in Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs for us, but first I'm going to start with a testimony. So we're going to read this tantalizing line from Acts chapter 18, verse 10, that God says, I have many in this city who are my people. He's telling Paul he hasn't reached them yet, he doesn't know who they are yet, but there are people populating this city who God has called and he's going to draw to himself. Now, he meant that for Corinth, but could that be true for Columbia as well? I got a phone call last night from a man I've never met, and I certainly never gave him my phone number, and he asked me for a ride to church this morning. So on the way to church, he told me that he had picked up a Bible that wasn't his, and out of the Bible fell an old CPC bulletin. And like back in the day, I don't know if this was five years ago, six years ago, the church phone number was my cell phone number. I was the church secretary, pastor, everything. So David Gentino, my cell phone number, it's this crumpled bulletin that falls out, sees the number. He said, the devil told me not to call you. I called you anyway. He was here this morning. God has people in this city and he will do his work and we will sit back and be surprised on a Saturday night how God continues to orchestrate beautiful things. He's doing that today. He's been doing that for 2,000 years in the church. We read about it in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Hear God's word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, for now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray together. Father, would you move so among us? Would you provide in every way that you command us and may we be obedient to do your will? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now church, I just have one simple point for us this morning that we are going to break down from this passage and that is this, God gives us what we need to do what he commands us to do. That's it. God gives us exactly, abundantly, beyond we can imagine of what we need to do what he commands us to do. God's calling on the life of a born-again believer is enormous. It's enormous. 
He says that he will change us by one degree of glory to another into the image of his son Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, which means... He is not done with us individually. He is not done with us corporately. He is not done with us universally as a church until we look, think, act, walk, talk, smell like his son Jesus all to the glory of the Father. That is an enormous calling on a believer. He brings us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He gives us a new appetite for the light to love it and want to dwell in it and do our work in it. And he begins to grow us up by faith in him. We had no grace, no power to do that before we came to Christ. Before you become a believer, before you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and he changes out our heart of stone for our heart of flesh, we had no desire, no inclination, and certainly no power to do his will. We wanted nothing to do with it. But at our conversion, we are joined to Christ and we have new desires, new power, new spirit-filling work to do what he is calling us to do. So no conversion or no inner transformation and there will be no desire or power to do his will. That's why we don't go out into our neighborhoods preaching the law to our neighbors, do this, be like this, act like this, try to be like Jesus. That has no power. There's no desire there. It cannot be done. And if that person was weighed on judgment day, they would be found wanting. Instead, we start with the gospel because where there is inner transformation, I've come to the end of myself and I confess that to God and receive his new indwelling power. All of a sudden, I have this desire to grow up into him and he will provide that power for true obedience. All of that plays out in a powerful way in Paul's missionary stop to the city of Corinth. He's on the second missionary journey. He's just been in Athens. Now he lands in Corinth, which is a historic city of 200,000 people. And it had a reputation as being a bad boy city. This was sin city. Like there was a, a saying that went around to live like a Corinthian, meant to do whatever you want, to live this hedonistic lifestyle. Corinth would have been home to the temple of Aphrodite. And that was a famous temple because there were a thousand temple prostitutes that lived there and people would come from all over the empire to frequent this city and that temple which makes us think of those foulest of sex slavery destinations in Southeast Asia. This is an awful, awful, dark, dark place. And I want to pause there as we show up in Corinth because I know in America, we are going through our wave after wave of so-called sexual revolution, that things that were unimaginable and, and not permissive years ago are now commonplace and they're thrown in our face today and we can hardly keep up with the way we are revolutionizing, quote unquote, the way we think about sexuality. And I've heard people complain inside and outside the church that the Bible is just too ancient and it's too archaic and it's too puritanical to keep up with the times and our imaginations when it comes to sexuality. And when I hear that, I think, keep up? Keep up? 
The Bible was written at a time when the Roman Empire's sexual mores made Americas look PG-13 by comparison. This is in a very dark place that we haven't even come to as a nation. And wherever Paul stood up and proclaimed this new kingdom that you dwell in as a single or as a married between one man and one woman, and you didn't indulge in adultery or temple prostitution, he sounded as absolutely crazy 2,000 years ago as he does today. Nothing has changed. The word of God stays the same as this foundation. Let cultures come and go. Let them experiment as they will. The word will speak to us fresh and presently because it is from the mouth of God. Because this was such a hostile place to plant a church, because this was such a dark city, Paul's church plant here would give him more heartache than any other church he planted. I mean, the, the church in Corinth, as you read in First and Second Corinthians, gave him deep and grievous heartache as he walked with them, which means the believers of Corinth Presbyterian Church, the original CPC, would need the words that Paul received from God in this vision as much as we need them now, which is that God will provide what we need to do what he commands us to do. Let's find that in our text because it comes to us in verses 9 and 10. Paul shows up, he preaches in the synagogue, he preaches on the streets. There's a bunch of opposition. We see some of it, we don't see all of it, but we know it must be serious because of what God says to Paul in this vision. But he appears to him in verses 9 and 10 and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. My professor and friend, the late Dr. Larkin, makes the point that there are three commands here and three promises. Every command comes with a promise. Did you notice that? He says, do not be afraid, command, because promise, I'm with you. Number two, keep on speaking, command, because promise, no one will attack you to harm you. He says, do not be silent, command, because promise, I have many people in this city. God is not commanding anything. He is not also providing for. Every command gets a provision. Every step in this new kingdom life comes with God's able hand to provide for us. It's like the parent that says to the five-year-old, let's do a plumbing project. That won't get done from the expertise of the five-year-old. They don't know anything. That will only come if the parent has assembled the tools and made six trips to Lowe's and watched a bunch of YouTube videos and has assembled everything so that the kid gets the happy experience of putting a few things together, handing a few tools, and then it's done. That's obedience in God's kingdom. God providing, even when we don't see him providing, the ways in which we follow him. So I want to look at both sides of that coin of the Christian walk, God's provisions and his commands. And we're going to start with commands because that's where verse 9 starts. So the whole principle, God gives us what we need. We're starting with the second part, to do what he commands us to do. <clears throat> so in verse 9, God gives three commands to Paul. He says, do not be afraid, 
Go on speaking, don't be silent. All of his commands to Paul in this context are great commission commands. Just heard that from Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, go to the nations, go to your neighborhood and make disciples preach the gospel. So you could take that set of commands and you could take a step back and say, actually, all of God's commands fit into three categories. And we talk about this in our discipleship process. Everything God commands falls under either worship or community or outreach. Loving God, loving each other, loving the lost. Jesus gave us those categories when he gave us the great commandments that you should love God, second is like it, that you should love your neighbor. And then he gave us the great commission, Matthew 22 and 28, Love God, love each other, love the lost. That's a lot, but that's all there is. There aren't other categories besides that, which means that Paul is here in the Great Commission, but us here this morning, whatever command in whatever of those three categories that is pressing and urgent on our minds and hearts, God is also doing the same for that command. So now that we're talking about God providing for every command, Let me ask us a punchy question this morning. This is not for our unbelieving friends that are here. Welcome, thrilled you're here. This is a question for the believer that is here. Where am I stepping out in obedience to even need God's provision? Where am I stepping out in faith, obedience, cruciform, taking up my cross and following Jesus to even need his special, supernatural, spirit-filled provision. I don't need provision where I have no intention of obeying. I don't need God's help if I am not going to follow him in God's way. I already have everything I need to do life my own way. I rolled out of bed this morning with every resource in the world to wake up and live a life of self-service and self-worship. I have that in and of myself. I don't need God. I don't need you. I don't need this word. I don't need anything. I can do that on my own. I only need God's help if I am humbly walking in God's way. Jesus threw down the hammer on this point in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember when he said, if you love those who will love you back, and if you serve those who will serve you back, and if you only lend money to those who can pay you back, I'm paraphrasing, big freaking deal. Nobody cares. Pagans do that every single day. Anybody can obey those commands. They already do them from in and of themselves. No one is impressed. There's nothing supernatural there. Just natural people working from natural preferences, doing what comes naturally. But if you want to step outside of that mold that you have been discipled into by the world and start to do things antithetical to that gospel and begin to pay and give and love and serve those who don't give anything back, well then that's supernatural and that's going to take supernatural providence provision inside of you to walk in obedience. That's what we're talking about this morning. So God is offering the promises, I am with you, no one will attack you, I have many people in this city 
but they are for the obedience. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For Paul, that's the Great Commission. That's what we said within this context. And if you circle all the Pauline verbs in this passage, Paul will reason, try to persuade, testify, go, baptize, speak, teach. He is living out from God's provision into God's obedience. So my question for us this morning then is, Christian, where are you living out in obedience that you are in need of God's supply? If you know he has it for you, what are the commands that he's given you? You could think about it within those three categories to fulfill the great commission, to love the lost. Where do I need God's provision in that? Maybe it's stepping out in faith and having an awkward conversation with my neighbor or my classmate or my coworker or the kids around my breakfast table. Where do I need to speak his gospel truth? Maybe I haven't been plugged into ministry and I know the church will help me get plugged into ministry and I'm terrified to do that and so I don't want to take that first step. Maybe that's the first step of obedience or I just don't know how to share the gospel or what to say and so getting in a growth group to learn how to do it will be the next step. Whatever that next step is, it is going to take supernatural provision within you as a believer to obey God in that. Maybe it's the second greatest commandment of the obedience of loving others, to love my spouse or kids or parents or roommates or to show up at this church not to be served but to serve and to give my life for other people or to do what Jesus said and love and loan to and serve and be kind to those who will never do that back to me. If I'm going to take a step in obedience, I'm going to need God's supply for that. Or maybe it's the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and I'm gonna need God's provision. I heard a a brother say recently that he had done something for the first time that he was terrified to do, probably did it wrong, isn't sure he's going to do it again. A man sat with his family and prayed grace over a meal. Never prayed with his family and for his family before. That was the first time he ever did it. He had always been some staff person praying for his family and he steps out in faith to do that. He will need God's provision to do that again and again and again and to lead his family in worship. What is that for you? Some of us are picking up our Bibles for the first time ever and starting a reading plan or we've already bailed on the one we promised to do at New Year's resolution and it's picking that up again. Some of us are looking at our finances and thinking how will I give generously to the church and her ministry or how will I increase what I am already giving? Some of us that's being honest about sin or habits or addictions in our life that we have not shared with another person and all of those things, they cannot be naturally done. We do not have the power to do them. We do not have the inclination to do them. We need God's rich, abundant provision to step out in obedience and faith. We need it and we're desperate for it, but we don't know we need it unless we are serious about his commands. But church, take heart because God is going to give us what we need to do what he commands us to do. Now he's God and he doesn't have to do that. He didn't have to do it this way. He could have brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light and then said, figure it out. I did the cross, you do the sanctification, figure it out, get it done, obey me. 
He could have said to us what Pharaoh said to the Israelites. Now that I hear you're complaining, I want you to make the same amount of bricks, but I want you to find your straw too. He could have said that. But not this God. This God gives us the straw, the clay, the molds, the desire, the gentle and lowly taskmaster, Jesus himself. And he says to us, let's make some bricks together. Let's together will and to work for my good pleasure. Second Peter 1.3 says, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There is not a single act of obedience that doesn't come from God's rich supply to accomplish. Do you know that, church? There is not a single act of obedience a praiseworthy thought, a way to serve another person, an act of mission that does not come from God's rich supply, which also means there will never be an act of obedience in which I can stake a flag on, turn around and say, I did that, I accomplished that, that was me. It is all his provision and all his work. Now I've done, taken all our time talking about God's commands and the fact that his provision is here. And I don't even have time for the the three precious promises that are here. So I'll only close with my favorite of the three, which comes to us in verse 10. This is God's rich supply. I am with you. I give you the provision of my presence. Those four precious English words They thunder from Genesis through the Pentateuch and the prophets all the way up to Jesus himself. And one of the last things he said when he was on earth that we heard in our scripture reading, for lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Every act of kingdom obedience is the five-year-old plumber. We are the believer in the hands of our heavenly father, who is ever-present, ever-providing, so that every act of obedience is coming from his rich supply and he will give us what we need to do what he commands for us to do. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would take seriously your commands to take up our cross and follow you And as we go to lift and lug that impossible weight, I pray that we would immediately know, feel, desire, experience the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit that comes from a precious union with Christ at salvation, that there is supernatural strength and desire and ability where there wasn't before, and that you in us will lift that cross to will and to work for your good pleasure. Do that in our midst. Do a miracle in this place and make us a body that follows hard after you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.